I'm, I'm glad you guys are here with me this morning. We are in a series in Acts. I hope that you guys have been enjoying it with us. We have learned a lot. Uh, we've only gone through Acts chapter 1 and 2, but we have already learned that the Holy Spirit is like necessary. Number one ingredient for anything that the church does. Number two, we've learned that if you need a favor from Pastor Darren, it's, he's really cheap. All you need is chocolate chips. You don't need money, time, whatever. Chocolate chips. Super easy. Um, I, I mentioned that in first service, so I could, I, I like switch up the jokes, you know. You know, you know. You can't tell the same joke twice. Um, and we've also learned that the Holy Spirit is so big that even us who are so small can expect like amazing things because that's how the Holy Spirit works. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 3 today and the author, Luke, has decided to get a little bit more intimate with us. So he zoomed right in because we've been looking at like the whole church, right? 3,000 added, 5,000 added. Today, we're looking at one story, one miracle, and I think this change in perspective is going to help us see things in a new way because I think to be a, ch a church that is continually following the way Jesus is leading, we have to have like a good set of eyes. We have to see things right. Um, but before we begin, let's pray. Um, dear Jesus, I just want to thank you so much that we can be here. I'm in your house to worship you. I'm to praise you. Uh, God, as we open up the word, as we discuss it, um, I pray that you may soften our hearts. Help us to listen to what you would have us learn. Um, we give ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I have the privilege of coaching the MGA, uh, let me say this right, MGA Girls Varsity Volleyball Team. Um, yeah, and you know what? Sometimes it's a pain. Uh, unless I'm working with Maddie and Ella. They're so good. Is, is there anybody else here today? No, just them. Okay. Okay. No, but I actually really enjoy coaching. Uh, Cerns is also here. He's like my boss. So like when I do, don't do stuff well, he coaches me on how to do things better. Um, but one thing I love about coaching is it allows me to work with kids from a different perspective. Because when they're in the game, the adrenaline's pumping, right? Every, the ball's moving like a thousand kilometers an hour, it feels like. Oh, miles, sorry. A thousand miles an hour. Um, and because of that, all of, all of that gets mixed up and sometimes they forget things. Things that they've been practicing over and over again. And coaches, one of the reasons we exist, okay, is from an outside perspective, tell them the things that they are doing or not doing and guide them. And that's why there's this phenomenon that happens in coaching. As soon as the game ends, okay, there's people that want to talk to me, okay? They're usually called parents, all right? And parents come and they have a lot of suggestions, okay? And this is the funny thing. A lot of the times, parents will say things that are actually kind of true. Even if they've never played a volleyball, like they've never touched a volleyball in their life. Uh, we went to a game the other day, and my wife, Alina, came to watch. She didn't play volleyball in high school or anything. That was the first real game of volleyball she's ever watched in her life, okay? And she came, and she was, like, telling me, oh, like, I wonder about this girl, I wonder about this girl. And in my head, I was like, man, she should just be a coach. And it's because, even if you don't really know the sport, because you have an outside view, okay, you can kind of guess and see things that should happen on the inside that you forget when you're in the moment even if you've been playing volleyball for a long time, all right? That's one of the things I love about coaching. 
Um, in this story today, I think we're going to learn that we have to do that sometimes. We can't just take a look and be in the moment, but we have to really get the grand view and look closely and see how we are supposed to act as Christians, see how we're supposed to act as a church. And the story is famous. Like, I mean, we probably even shouldn't even preach on it. It's a children's story. There's even a song that goes with it, all right? There's a guy, and he's outside the temple. Peter and John are walking towards it. It's a beautiful day, 3 p.m., time for afternoon prayer, and they get to a gate called Beautiful. It's, according to Josephus, one of the nicest gates because it's just, like, plastered in gold. Like thin, but still gold, still shiny. And people go there, and it's also beautiful, except right at the gate, there's something that's not. It's a guy who's lame. He can't walk. He's, his feet are too small for his body size because he's never taken a step a day in his life. He's dirty because he can't, like, get to the bath and, and do normal things. And he's there, and something unique happens. Peter does the whole silver and gold, I have none. You guys know the line. And he picks him up. He's dancing, he's singing, they go into the temple, Peter preaches a sermon, and we learn a lesson. That's how the children's story goes. Well, we're going to take it a little slower, and we're going to see that all the different parties in the story are not just looking, but they're forced to look even closer, and I think we're going to learn something. So if you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 3, they're not going to be on the slides today, so pull out your pew Bible, okay, pull out your phone, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, that one called Beautiful, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter... And John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Then Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. In this chapter, chapter 3, the word see or look is in there more than 11 times. It's actually there 11 times, but there's extras where sometimes it's a little deeper, and it means to understand, like to know. So it's like you see through. You totally get what's going on. So that's a key word in our passage here, all right? And the lame man is there. We don't know how he ended up there. Um, In the Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White tells us um, a story. Uh, She says that this man, lame from birth, never been able to take a step, starts hearing rumors about a guy named Jesus. And this guy is fixing things. He's fixing arms and legs. He's clearing demons. He's doing stuff. And this man thinks, that's the guy who can fix my legs. And so, without the internet, honestly, I don't even know how he does it. He tries to search for Jesus. He tries to beg his friends and his family, take me to Jesus. Finally, he's able to corral some helpers. They take him to the temple, and lo and behold, Jesus has died. It's over. The one guy who could fix it is not in business anymore. Jesus' time is over. And so he's there at the gate, waiting and begging. 
he sees Peter and, and John come along, and he sees them. Then he turns away and just says, just something. And Peter says, hey, mister, look at me. Really look, because you want to know something? Jesus' time is still here. It's still now. I wonder sometimes if we think that Jesus' time has passed. Sometimes we put limits on the things we believe Jesus works. Sometimes as a pastor, I catch myself saying this to my kids, oh, even though it's like in the Bible, it might not work exactly like that anymore. What a silly statement. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus' time has passed. But as Christians, we need to look behind what may seem like, man, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't as strong as he is now. Maybe Jesus isn't as active. We need to look past that and believe in faith. Jesus' time is still now. And so Peter says, look at me. Get up and walk. Picks him up and they start doing the dance thing. Wow. Guys, church, remember, Jesus' time is now. We need to believe that as a church. But not only the lame man has seen a new thing, he's not realized that, wow, Jesus is way better than I thought. I thought he could fix my legs. Obviously, he's way better than that. There's the crowd. In lots of Bible stories, we see the crowd, and usually they don't do anything, but in this passage, they do something. They look. In verse 9, this is what it says. All the people saw him walking, and they heard him praising God. And when they realized, now that doesn't say see, but that's one of those Greek words, right? That means to look and know, to understand. When they saw that he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were completely astounded. Did you catch what happens here? Everybody in the crowd knows who the guy is. It's a weird thing we have, human beings, memory. We're able to know people's pain, see when people are hurting, see when things need to be fixed, and we have the ability to just cut it out. We see it, and we don't understand it. That's a no-no for the way that Jesus calls us to live. We can't just go by life and say, I'm a good person, I do all the right things, and not understand the pain and the healing that is needed in the world around us. Um, I find myself doing this a lot, and this is usually how I know I'm doing it. Um, I'll be like having dinner with Alina, or we'll be in the car ride, and like we talk about a lot of stuff, but as a youth pastor, the number one thing we talk about is the kids, all right? So we're in the car, we're talking about the youth, and I'll say something like, man, you know, it feels like Billy has been really down for a few weeks. I wonder what's up. And then Alina, my wife, in wisdom, says, well, have you asked him? And I say, no, I probably should do that. What did I do? I was able to see, because I, I could identify that he, there was something going on, but I wasn't, my brain didn't have the know-how and muscle and intention to understand that he needed help. It wasn't that I could even say like, oh, he needs help, I'm too busy, I don't have time. My brain didn't even get to that point, right? I had, so we have to teach ourselves to look at people with empathy, with intention, not just see, but really aim to understand. 
right? So there's two, two ways we've seen the way we look changes things. The first thing, we have to look at the world like Jesus is still present, reigning, and active now. Secondly, we need to look around us and really understand what people are going through. And it's hard. I know it's hard, okay? But the people, the crowd, is learning to do that. And they're amazed. And so now that they're looking in a new way, the time is right, and Peter knows the time is right. So this is what he says in verse 12. Peter saw his opportunity, and he addressed the crowd. There it is, that verb again. He saw his opportunity. When's the last time you guys saw your opportunity and preached your sermon? Anybody? Oh, so, so, so do you say today? Yeah. Amen. Hey, that's an uncomfortable thing. Now, obviously, guys, I don't mean like a sermon. Okay. Did you preach a sermon? Like three points? No, not, not that. Okay. She knows. She, we're on the same wavelength. Okay. When's the last time you did that? Now, obviously, I'm not telling you to say, like, Jesus, 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 every second, okay? Because you know what that is, actually? There's actually evangelizers like that, I feel. This is a personal opinion now. Those are annoying Christians, okay? Because sometimes it feels like they haven't taken the time to understand me, but legit everything just has Jesus pasted all over it. Cut, paste, copy, nice. Jesus is part of everything, but it doesn't really feel like he's part of it, right? Sometimes we can do that. We become heavy laden, talking about the Jesus who says, my burden is light. Kind of weird. And so Peter is different than that, though, because he sees the opportunity, and he preaches his sermon. Now, you guys might be sitting there and saying, like, okay, great principle, but what am I supposed to talk about? I don't know what to say. Hey, good thing Peter gives us a little template here, okay? Let's break it down. Verse 12 People of Israel, he says, what's so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we have made this man walk by our own power of godliness? No, for it is by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. And I'm going to go down to verse 14. You rejected his holy righteous one, and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of the fact. All you have to do when you're talking about Jesus is say, we really rejected the God who is about love, and then we killed him. And now he's come back to save us. Pretty crazy. We need to tell people about Jesus, okay? Now, you might say, oh, Pastor Mark, that's really hard, okay? Like, I can tell people, like, to be nice. I can tell people to be kind. I can be kind, but to, like, say the words, like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Like, that's not a Trader Joe conversation, you know? Like, what am I supposed to say then, Pastor Mark? All right? We should say that, though, before I continue, Sometimes we need to say that. We can't go on by showing it. This is actually a fallacy that I bought in as a young youth pastor, which is like, don't preach a sermon, be the sermon. 
all right? And you know what happened? I got a whole generation of youth that was nice but never talked about Jesus, all right? We also got to preach the sermon. All right, so Peter's there. He's preaching a sermon, and he says, you guys killed the author of life. But let me tell you what he is about. And he tells them an old story, a story that they know very well, the story of Father Abraham. This is what he says. For it is, in verse 13, for it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. He says, now that we're seeing things differently, we have to realize that our bonds run deep now. When you are a Christian, your bonds run deep with other Christians. Not just the Christians in this church. The Christians in, it's actually the Christians in the SDA church next door. What is that, Ukraine Spanish? Yeah. The ones down the road, across the county line, Ukraine SDA. The ones in, in town, the ones with no SDA in the name. The bonds run deep. Because now we're all connected through this guy named Father Abraham. And so he tells this story, and he says, Now that you know it, you must repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. The first thing we should tell people is tell people about Jesus. The second thing that is really tied to it is tell people how. Okay? Not like you should do this or you should do that, but Point me in the direction, right? You've, you've heard it before. Repent means to turn around, okay? Really, it means point him, okay? This is Jesus. Hey, this is one step. Let me take you one step. That's a sermon, guys. Uh, pastors here spend hours saying what we're going to talk, and legit, we come out the door hoping you guys take one step towards Jesus, okay? Even you guys have the ability to go talk to a friend and guide them on one step one step towards Jesus. That's what repentance is. And that's why we do it every day, right? Because one step, one step, one step. Man, if only we had a cross back here. Takes you to Jesus. All right. And then he ends with a promise. He says this in verse 25. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on the earth will be blessed. Hmm. All the families on the earth will be blessed. You know, covenants are a really interesting thing because they're not uniquely from the Bible. I don't know if you guys know that. The, the covenants in the Bible are actually some of the newer covenants we have in history. Uh, the, like, Babel the Babylonians the Egyptians, the old Canaanites have had covenants way be before, like, the Israelites were around, okay? And so actually, it feels like the form is the same, so it's almost like we copied the way they do it, right? It's always like, this is the God we believe in. This is what we are going to do. This is what's going to happen if we do it. This is what's going to happen if you don't do it. Covenants always follow the same progression, but there's something really unique about the Abraham covenant, okay? And it's that... God uses metaphors that go beyond the bounds of a nor normal covenant. 
Because covenants are laws. They have to be specific. And so God goes to Abraham. Okay, he goes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, look at the stars. And Abraham says, okay. And God says, count them. So Abraham starts counting. One, two, three, four. God says, I'll wait. So he keeps counting. 30, 40, 50, 60. God says, I don't got time to wait. All those stars there, that is the range of the blessings you are going to have on the world. That's how much of the world you're going to bless. Those many people. And he says, Abraham, count the sand. And so Abraham says, God, we're in the desert. And he says, count the sand. One, two, three. God says, keep going, I'll wait. 100, 200, 300. God says, okay, that's it. I don't have time for this. All the sand in the earth. That's the range of your blessings. Guys, sometimes I think we've kind of fallen short on how much our church is supposed to bless the nations around us. Because I can count, I can count the amount of people I feel like I've touched this week. All right? The range for the amount, the promise that we are a part of when we are a covenant church is ginormous. It's, it's beyond reckoning. And it only can happen if all of us, and when I say all of us, I mean all of us start believing and seeing that God is active now, like right now. He has power right now. And we start seeing the real needs of the world. That's the only way. On Tuesdays, there's five of us pastors who meet in there. If five of us pastors overworked our butt, actually, we, we do. We overwork ourselves, probably. It still is not even going to get like a handful of sands. The promise, the covenant promise only works when all of God's people do what we're supposed to do. And then, one day, I really believe, if we, if we start being the church that God calls us to be, in heaven, God says, hey, look at the stars. Oh, look at the sand. Actually, never mind. Look at the amount of people here. Keep counting. Keep counting. I remember uh, when I was in high school, grade 12 year, uh, that was like when I had the first inklings of being a pastor. It was all rejection of God at that point, but like I felt like God wanted me to be a pastor. So I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to. But I had the first inklings, and I had a mentor who told me, Mark, you're the essay president of your school. What would it look like if every activity you did had to do with Jesus. And I said, you know what, let me tell you what it looked like. Looked pretty boring. Because in high school, if you guys remember this, what does essay plan? Beach days, fun activities, hype things, concerts, food, bouncy castle. That's what essay does at an SDA academy. Let's be completely honest. And my mentor said, oh, maybe not. That's what I did. Okay, let me paraphrase it. That's what I did when I was essay president. And he said, what if every single thing you did had to be about Jesus and everything else that you didn't do had to be thrown out the window? And I said, okay, I'll try. I'll try. And so we went to the calendar, and the first day was so sad because it's just deletion. Deletion. Oh, this is just like a mosh pit. Delete. Oh, we're just going to pie the teachers? Oh, maybe that teaches elementary kids violence. Delete. Delete, 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 delete. And now we had a challenge. How do we build a community, have fun, be a group that enjoys each other if Jesus is the center of everything? How do we have fun high school memories if Jesus is the center of everything? 
Okay, and you guys might be thinking, like, what is Pastor Mark saying? But I hope you understand what I'm saying, right? Because fun is fun, right? Like, drifting maybe doesn't have Jesus involved, but drifting is fun. We know drifting is fun. And so it forced us to do a couple things. The first thing it forced our essay to do was we had to really pay attention to what kind of things the students liked. Because now we just, couldn't, we just couldn't plan a party and everyone was going to have fun. We had to realize that some kids liked playing Beyblades, which was a thing when I was a kid. Some kids liked playing basketball. Some kids liked reading more than anything else. So I remember our essay lunch periods, when we had essay lunch period, half the gym, and this is true, okay, half the gym had little bowls where the grade six to eighters played Beyblades, okay? Over here, we had basketball team going. Then we had book club in the lobby, but before anything, any of that had to begin, we had to meet and we had to pray. It changed the whole way we designed to do things as student leaders in our body. It changed everything. And so I think if we start to look with different eyes to say, what if Jesus is actually not a history lesson? He's active right now. What if I actually need to pay attention to people and then I'll understand them? Then we can become friends. And what if the church is more than just a building that meets once a week? But what if it's actually reaching out and multiplying sands, telling other people about Jesus? And the impact is, the impact is enormous. Can you imagine? Now, you might be thinking, that's a high calling, Pastor Mark. Peter knows it's a high calling, too. And so we actually, uh, we're going to go a little back in the text a little bit. And this is what he tells them, I think to encourage them, but it is kind of sad. In verse 17, he says, Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Basically, I know that you sin a lot, that you do things that you don't mean to do. Even when you do good things, when you are stoic Jews, you killed the Messiah. In all the best intentions, you can still get it wrong. But he says, there's still hope because the author of life is still alive. Church, my prayer for you guys is that you start to look at the world a little differently. Start to look at your church with higher expectations. We're part of this huge legacy that began with Father Abraham that's supposed to change the world. Start looking at the people around you in love. Then, church, then, man, they're going to write another book about us, Acts of Kalamesa. As we leave today, I want to read you the blessing, the promise. This is your promise, the promise of Abraham. This is what the Lord says Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son for us anything, I swear that by my own name, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer. And through your descendants, that's us, 
All the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Amen.